Heavenly Father, from this passage, we see clearly the work that you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit in a church that is truly devoted to the means of grace of worshiping you. We want to hear it this morning, Father, as a family here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, and to see that this was not an anomaly or an historical abnormality, but in fact, the very way that you have equipped your children, your church families to live throughout the centuries. And we don't want to be any different, Father. And so I ask, Lord, that you would take these Holy Spirit-inspired words and that we would receive them with a desire to do them. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would not allow this teaching to fall on deaf ears, even if we understand but do not do, but instead, Lord, hear, receive, and submit in love and in power. I'm so thankful, Father, for those that you've gathered here today in this church, for all your children and all the families, Lord, that are spread throughout this glorious world that are gathered on this Lord's day to worship you. I pray, Lord, you would bless each and every family gathering with a true understanding of the sacrifice that Christ made and the blood that he spilled to bring us into this new family. And then simultaneously, Father, I ask that you would cause us to see each other and love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not merely to use that Christian title, but to live it out each and every day. And we know, Lord, that when that happens in a local church, that the world, as Pastor just prayed, is truly at attention. They, they see what you are doing. And we ask that you would use that brilliant testimony to add to this family. We pray that, Lord, for the blessing here, for the blessing of the Cambrian Park community. And we pray it above all else for your glory, that more people will worship Jesus in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, saints. Did you expect a Mother's Day sermon? No, you did not. If you've been here, I, I, don't, I generally don't do those things. Every sermon is an appropriate sermon for Mother's Day or Father's Day or any other day we want to create. Um, this happens to be particularly good, though. I mean, we're talking about family. And so moms are instrumental in family making, and uh, we're going to see that here as well. The title of the sermon is God's New Family. And if you've been with us thus far, we're, we're getting to the first of many summary passages in the book of Acts. Luke likes to do that. He's a good writer. He knows that we have a tendency to forget, so he throws in a summary. Verses 42 to 47, it's an extended summary. And it's going to essentially recap what's happened and then the outcome from that. And thus far, what we've seen is we've seen the Holy Spirit poured out on those 120 that were there praying in that upper room. Then they go out and they're proclaiming and worshiping God testifying to his goodness and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is pleased on that day to save many. In fact, when, when Peter brings in verse 36, look at verse 36 with me, he brings the weight of the sin of those Jews who had gathered. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they're immediately cut to the heart they realize they're in a crisis state, and they, so they cry out, brothers, what must we do? And then Peter gives the answer in verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and they did, and God did what He promised to do. He sent the Holy Spirit, and the church went, you talk about church growth, the church went from 120 to 3,000 like that in a single day through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word, whose word? Peter's sermon. Those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And you're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. Here he adds 3,000. We're going to see he's doing that day by day adding more. We're going to get to chapter 4 and he's going to add another 5,000. In other words, what we see in the book of Acts in the early church is massive replication. Massive addition to God's family. Thousands of Christ followers repenting, believing, being baptized with a key distinction from how we process Christianity today. They were not thousands of thousands of people living in isolation as we practice Christianity, but thousands being saved and brought into community, into God's new community, we would say into God's new family. One author put it like this, describing the church in Jerusalem. Listen, he said, A saving relationship with God and a commitment to God's family were inseparable in the early church. One became a follower of Jesus, and the family of God took first priority in his life. In other words, the New Testament church understood that salvation was a family-creating event, not processed like we do today. I mean, in the Western world, and even in the Western church, we think about Jesus, my personal Savior, independent of the church. There's no such thing in Scripture, and there really was no such thing for most of church history. Believers saw themselves as being members, brothers and sisters of God's eternal family. So the question for us is how, when you live in a culture, and even a church that advocates radical individualism, and isolationism, how do we get a bearing on what this is supposed to look like? How do I know how to live as a spiritual family when the culture does not live as a family? Well, I'm so thankful that the Bible gives us an answer. In fact, Dr. Luke here makes it super practical and says this is how the early church did it. You might want to take note and do the same. Very practical answers that I would argue you're probably not going to like hearing. I mean, if you were raised in the West like I was, these are really hard teachings for us. But again, if we want to please God, then we want to hear the Word and what? And submit to it. We want to hear God speak to us and then do what God actually says. Not only to please God, but what God commands us to do and how He teaches us to live as a family, that, that is a blessing for us. And it's a blessing for the community in which we live. So we want to do this for ourselves, and we want to do that for the lost on our mission field as well. I had a friend in high school whose parents were divorced. He lived with his father. His younger sister lived with his mother. His dad worked all the time. He essentially lived alone. And he'd come over and sometimes spend the night, and he saw two parents married, four boys sitting around a table eating. And every time he came over, he would leave with this sense of awe. And I'd usually see him at school the following week, and he goes, your family is amazing. And what he was seeing was family. He was getting a glimpse of how God created the family to be. That's my hope this morning, saints, is that we get a glimpse from Acts chapter 2 
Because a glimpse is all that's necessary to change your heart. We get a glimpse from chapter 2 of the new family that God has been growing since Pentecost and is growing to this very hour. And I pray that it equips us and encourages us to live the same. Amen? All right, so we'll do that by looking at three things. Number one, God's new family, the new family's devotion, what this new family's devotion looks like. Number two, this new family's unity. And number three, this new family's worship. How this new family were devoted, how they were unified, and how they worshiped God. The theme of the sermon would be this. This is profound. You ready? God grows his family through his family. God grows his family through his family. He adds to the church through the church. Point number one, this new family's devotion. Dr. Luke identifies in his summary in verse 42 four, I would say, essential characteristics defining marks of the early church. And he provides us really, because you read through it and it almost sounds too good to be true. When you heard Pastor Kirby thinking, what church is that? Where is that? I want to be a part of that church. He gives us a glimpse. Dr. Luke gives us a glimpse of the Holy Spirit doing a mighty work. And when people are submitting to the work of the Spirit, how God blesses in miraculous ways. Not something that should be foreign to us. They were devoted to four things. The Word of God, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Look at verse 41 again. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, verse 42. And they, now the the 3,120 souls that now put their faith in Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The prayers. So what happened? They got up that day, and they're worshiping God at Pentecost. And then they hear this commotion going on. They heard the 120 indwelt by the Spirit worshiping God in foreign languages. And they go over and they want to see what's happening. And God saves them too. And instantaneously we see now that these souls have been filled by the Holy Spirit. Their devotions change. And that makes sense, right? If your heart changes because now God dwells in your heart, then what you're devoted to will also necessarily change. So they went from being, remember, pious or devout Jews, waking up that morning, probably being devoted to old covenant legalism, certainly to nationalism, family honor, politics, law, probably several things, to being devoted to worshiping God as a family. Worshiping God in a new way as the family of God. They were devoted to these means of grace. That word devoted means steadfast, or resolute, single-minded in action, right? Staying a course, being devoted to. And the first thing we see they were devoted to, they were steadfast and single-minded to, were the teachings of the apostles. That's the Word of God that we have now. Right? These were the eyewitness testimonies to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These were men that Jesus had officially authorized to proclaim the gospel, officially authorized to bring his teaching to the world, officially authorized by Christ to reveal the plan of redemption to the lost. So it was the Word of God we see right off that began to shape this brand new family, telling them who God is and who they are and how they were to worship and live as a new family. 
And we're told that they were devoted to the teachings. Now, that's more than just hearing the apostles teach. To be devoted to the teaching was hearing and doing. It was receiving the Word and then living in accordance with the Word. In fact, I would argue that when we talk about the Jerusalem church, the reason it was a Spirit-filled church is not so much the awe and the wonders and the miracles we see in verse 43. It's the fact that they were living in accordance with God's Word. That's what a true Spirit-filled church is, my beloved. A true Spirit-filled church hears God's Word and is committed to God's Word. Not in isolation, but as a family striving together to live together in accordance with what God has declared. It's a family committed to using the same manual for life. Right? We have, when we talk about our Bible, it is the Word of God. It's how we are to live. It's how we're to relate to God and to one another. So that when problems arise in the church, we have something we can go back to. I mean, the Bible tells us everything we need to know for life and holiness how you are to love your husband or your wife, how you're to raise your children, how you're to make disciples, how we're to gather in times like this. Why do you think we do Sundays the way we do? The Bible tells us how to do it, how to engage the community, how to share the gospel with the lost. And so having the Bible means that when a disagreement or dispute takes place in the family, you can gather around the family table and you can open up your Bible and say, what saith the Lord? And if we're all having the the spirit dwell in us then we should be able to go to the bible whatever that dispute may be and be reconciled amen yeah that's how it's supposed to be not the bible as i interpret it and not the bible as you interpret it but the bible as the church interprets it as we see what the bible says so the first thing we see is they were devoted to god's word second thing they were devoted to fellowship now luke's going to illustrate this in detail in verses 44 to 47 So we'll look at that in an illustrative form. But right here, he starts with just this essential quality of being in fellowship together. Most of you know the Greek word. It's used a lot. Koinonia, you heard of koinonia groups or koinonia gatherings. It it can mean lots of things depending upon the context. Partnership, community, unity. Here, though, one author put it like this, and I think it's perfect. He defines fellowship as the means to share with someone in something above and beyond the relationship itself. Did you hear that? Let me read it again. To share with someone in something above and beyond the relationship itself. So, for example, if you and your best friend in high school decide you're going to join the football team, joining the football team does not nullify your friendship. It actually should enhance it because now you share with your best friend something above and beyond yourself. What is that? The success of the team. So you together will work hard at practice, and you will strive for the well-being of the team. If you work really hard with your teammates, maybe you'll win league, and maybe you'll win championship. Biblical fellowship is similar to that. People being saved by God's grace, brought into a family, made friends, made brothers and sisters for a much greater cause. I mean, God has not just gathered us here to enjoy each other. That is a blessing. But if that were all that God intended for us, he would just... Bring us home, because I guarantee you our fellowship in heaven will be better than this. There'll be no sin. So he gathers us together that we might fight for the cause of Christ, that we might, as a family, live in such a way that this world sees us, sees God, repents, and believes too. In other words, he gathers us together that we might fight for the greater cause of those who do not know Christ, to bring the gospel of grace to them. 
They were united to his word. They were devoted to fellowship. Third thing that Dr. Luke gives us is they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Verse 42 again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread and the prayers, those are expressions of their fellowship, certainly aspects of their worship of God. The breaking of bread, you think, well, I I thought that was just something Southern Baptists did. No, no, that goes all the way back to the first century. And it certainly includes the the breaking of bread around the the Lord's table where we, we take the bread and the wine that represents the body and blood of Christ. Um, and it also, then they had what were called love feasts or agape meals, and they would gather, usually on the Lord's Day, and they would have a big meal, just like we're going to do right after the service. So we can call that our, our love feast. And they also, verse 46 tells us that they, they broke bread in their homes, so they were regularly engaging in hospitality. And you said, well, that tells me absolutely without question that the first church in Jerusalem was a Baptist church because they were eating all the time. Baptist churches are always eating. You say, well, why is that? Is that just tradition? In part, yes, and in part, no. You see, I think that Southern Baptists, probably more than other denominations, get the fact that to share a meal with someone is sharing intimacy with someone. Certainly in the first century church, both the Jewish culture and the Mediterranean culture understood that when you had someone sit at a table with you and you were eating with them, it reveals some extraordinary things. I know today we eat and we just eat. And we say, okay, see ya. It revealed then equality. When you invite someone to a table in that time period, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean culture, you are seeing them as an equal. It, it called for intimacy that you're saying, I'm going to break bread with this neighbor of mine. And it also testified to the, the approval. You didn't invite someone into your home to have a meal that you did not approve of. So equality, intimacy, approval were all taking place around this breaking of bread, around these many tables. And in the church, it revealed then and now the radical inclusivity of those saved by grace. Right? I know we know in the New Testament there was a great battle between the Jews and the Gentiles, and that Christ came to break that barrier down. But how much more so now? Every tribe, tongue, and nation, we call to repent and believe and come into the family of God, and then we say, sit down, let's eat together. Let's eat together in the name of Christ, revealing, I think, probably better than most ways that we live revealing to a broken and divided world that Christ and the power of the gospel actually brings unity and healing. Why don't we hear that on the 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock news? Here's the, way, here's the way to heal the nations. Here's the way to heal the races. Share the gospel of Christ. Bring them into the family. It's not much different today, my beloved. If you've, if you've opened up your home and you had a brother or sister into your home and shared a meal, oh, those are just... Those are just fun, glorious times. And then you see him on Wednesday, or you see him on Sunday, you're like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, you ate at my house. You ate at, you ate at my table. Right? There's something, there's just a natural intimacy that comes. How much more so, listen, how much more so a neighbor that doesn't know Christ? Invite him in, sit him down, hear their story, get to know them, love them, serve them as Christ has served you. Oh my goodness, my beloved, in a culture that does not know hospitality, and we do not know hospitality, you want to talk about a radical expression of love? Break out the barbecue, throw on a burger, invite your neighbor, and see what happens. See what happens. People love to eat. People love free food, right? Most will say, yeah, we'd love to come, but we should be the ones inviting. 
Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2.4, he is our peace, Paul tells us, destroying the dividing wall of hostility with every people group. And we're the tip of that sword that brings that destruction of that wall that we might see unity in Christ. So this family was devoted to the word of God. They were devoted to true fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And last one, he tells us they were devoted to the prayers. In the Greek, the article is there. And that's kind of important because most of the commentators believe that they were being still devoted to the formal prayers in the temple. Now, they weren't still worshiping and engaging in the Old Testament sacrifices because Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But they gathered there because they realized that this still was an important part of the worship of God, praying to God in the temple. And then Luke adds, also in their homes. And so in other words, we see that there was a devotion to prayer both in the temple and in their homes, organic and organized, and churches that are wise will do the same today, that we will gather regularly as a people. We gathered this morning, and we had a chance to pray for so many things this morning, that we'll gather regularly here at the church, and we'll gather in our homes, and we will, we will seek God. We will seek Him through this primary means of grace. We'll, we'll seek His wisdom and guidance. We will praise Him for the great work that He's doing. We will seek him together for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, this has always been, listen, this has always been essential to the life of the church. You read a church history book and God's people pray. And I do believe, and I, I, uh, I believe that one of the reasons that the church in the West today is so weak is because we spend so little time praying as a family. I really do. Um, a, lot, a lot of our corporate prayer time and our in-home prayer time has been replaced with other things. Not bad things, just replaced. Um, I think the church would be wise today in the West to start praying again together. I think we'd see great results. So they're devoted, steadfast, to being, listen, shaped by God's word, united in fellowship by his spirit, intimate in the breaking of bread with one another, and completely sold out on prayer. Shaped, united, intimate, and dependent. Shaped, united. Think about that. That's the description of God's church. Shaped, united, intimate, and dependent upon God's word. What was the result? Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We're going to see more of that. Peter's going to give us the first healing we see in the book of Acts next week. And there are several that the apostles do. Obviously, the wonders and the signs were to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel just as it was with Christ. But this verse, verse 43 actually says, and awe came upon every soul in relationship both to the family that God was creating and the works he was doing, the miraculous works. In other words, the product of their new community brought awe and wonder. They were seeing strangers love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. They were engaged in means of graces and being devoted to things they had never been devoted to before. My beloved, might, might this be why there's so little awe and wonder in the church today? So little awe and wonder. Not because the wonders and signs have ceased, and I believe that they have, they were appropriate for that time, but because so much of our faith, whether we want to admit it or not, is lived out alone. We, we are lonely, individualistic Christians. Rather than living as this act to spirit-filled family. How different? How different would the Western church be? 
how different would Cambrian Park Baptist Church be if our DNA was Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47? If we said yes, amen to this, most of you have not disagreed thus far. I mean, you're not going to bring up a major theological discourse and say, oh, that can't be true. Maybe just living in accordance with our church covenant so that when people come here, they see a spirit-filled church. Not because we're doing signs and wonders, but because we're what? We're hearing and doing God's word. We're living in intimacy as a fellowship of brothers and sisters in the family of God. We are breaking bread all the time, and we do break bread a lot. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray. I imagine that someone coming in and seeing a church like that would say, this is different. This is different. The Jerusalem church, by God's grace, was not an aberration, and it was not an historical anomaly. It is a model given to us to follow. Not pragmatically, not do X, Y, and Z, and here's the result, but to live in love for one another and for Christ like this. It's a model because, listen, we can say what they knew to be true. Christ is seated upon the throne. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are God's new family placed here in Cambrian Park So the only reasonable explanation, I would say the the only reasonable response to such a radical declaration of the exaltation of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and we being a new family is to live differently, to live as this family that we are. See, it's not how you live that makes us a family. It's Christ who makes us a family by uniting us through his blood. The question is, well, will we live as the family that we truly are? No longer, no longer enemies of God, no longer Christians saved and living in isolation. That's not the biblical model. But forgiven by God completely in Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit completely in Christ, and then added to the family of God. No greater title do you possess, my beloved, than brother or sister in Christ. No greater title. Living as a family and testifying to the world in our love for each other, setting the world on notice. There's a different way to live and there's a different way to love. And if you're lonely and you weren't raised in a healthy family and you're from a single parent home, there's a place you can come and experience true family and true love that comes directly from the throne of God. Lots of people will want to have that. I know I did before I came to a saving grace. The gospel has the great power of turning our enemies into our friends and our strangers into brothers and sisters in Christ. What a thought. The gospel has the power to take your enemies and make them your friends and have strangers who you do not know become brothers and sisters, blood-bought into the family of God. What a message for the world today. What a message. What better message could we give the world today in light of all the division, real and unreal, that we constantly hear The gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so number one, they were devoted to the means of grace that reflected their new family life. Number two, this new family's unity. So Luke's summary of of family life, I guarantee you, seemed radical even to the Jews at that time. This was crazy intimacy. This was unity and love 
that went way beyond the Jewish culture, even those pious Jews that had gathered that day. Now, you fast forward. (laughs) You fast forward to the church in 2021. This is unheard of. I mean, this is not only radical. Most hear this type of teaching, and we say, that's a direct attack on my rights as an American. What are you telling me? I'm not, I can't be radically independent. I don't have absolute freedom and personal autonomy and self-choice and self-sufficiency and self-exaltation and no accountability. That's what the Bible says. For your good. For your good. See, the great lie that's been perpetuated now for a couple hundred years is that you can live your life all alone and truly be satisfied both in self and with God. Not true. You were created a communal creature. You are a communal creature. You were created and saved into a community of believers. So this isolationism that we're trying to put on our our feet as a shoe does not fit, never will, never has. And so these verses in 44 to 47, and I say this sincerely, only by the power of the Holy Spirit will you listen and not go, "Mm mm-mm, oh, no way am I doing that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to hear it and by God's grace receive it and say, oh, that is good. That's good. I want to live like that. I want to be part of that type of family. So Luke gives us here a picture of a family that's truly united, that has familial solidarity. They are one. Their purpose is one. Their possessions are one. Look at verse 44. These, my beloved, these are intended to be extreme statements. Verse 44, all who believe, that's now the entire church, 3,120 plus people, were gathered together and had, what's that say? All things in common. Pause. <laughs> they had all things in common. And then in verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. And now, now we've tapped into the Western idol, right? Now, it's one thing to say we have all things in common, but don't touch my pocketbook. I'll have all things in common, my brothers and sisters, as long as you leave my bank account alone. The Greek literally says this. It says, all who believed were together the same. Not all together the same. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to what he says. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. And that all the members of the body, though many, are one. In other words, every single person saved by grace is saved as an individual, unique uniquely gifted, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This doesn't deny any of that. But upon your being saved, with all the gifts now being poured out on you, you're brought into this great family of God. And you no longer are to live that autonomous life. You are to live for the good of the whole, for the good of the family, which is also your good too, because your identity is now tied into the family. You see, my beloved, the early church realized quickly, and it would behoove us to realize it too, that the glorification of God and the outworking of the gospel is not and never has been a one-man show. Not even Jesus, who you could say if there's one person that it could be a one-man show, it would be Christ, but it wasn't Christ. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, it cannot be for us. You can't say I'm saved by grace and I'm going to live alone. One author put it like this. He said, one person alone, no matter how gifted, cannot play a Beethoven symphony, act a Shakespearean tragedy, or compete against another team. Now, our culture, our culture gets that. 
If you, if you went to see the San Francisco Symphony and you went to see Handel's Messiah and you had one person on the stage, you'd probably leave and ask for your money back. That's a symphony. Lots of people, lots of parts, lots of voices. We get it on the field, right? I don't care how good your pitcher is. If your pitcher's the only man on the team, your team will lose every time. So how do we get it in the theater and how do we understand it on the field and we don't get it in the church? The one place where true unity in Christ can be had and enjoyed, infinitely more so than a symphony and a baseball team. The culture has in many ways led us to believe that the church can be a gathering of independent free agents, loosely attached. The Jerusalem church got it. Praise God. What a rough start it would have been if they all went, 3,120 people, their own separate ways. They got it. They believed and they lived as though they had all things in common. Why? Because they did. Right? They did. They had all things in common because all things they realized were blessings from God. And therefore, what right did they have to hold on to their love or their service or even their money if they were gifts from God? They were united in their collective love for Christ. They were united in their their worship of God. They were united in their submission to the Word in their desire to see their brothers and sisters grown in the faith. They were not satisfied growing alone. They wanted their brothers and sisters to grow too because they knew if their brothers and sisters were strong, they were strong. They were united in their love for the lost and their proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples. They were united, my beloved, in all things to such a degree that Dr. Luke tells us that in the church they were so united that if anybody in the church was lacking any of the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter, anything they needed, his or her needs were met. Look at verse 45 again. I don't know how much this is preached on today in the Western world. I imagine you could probably clear a church of a thousand in two weeks on this topic. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One way you want to determine how unified a group is, look at the pocketbooks. See how tight people are holding on to their money. How generous are they will determine true unity in any group of any kind. The old adage, put your money where your mouth is, it works really well here. Put your money where your mouth is. You see any church that has any real mutual watch care for its members will not neglect the real physical needs of its members. If we're going to say we really love each other, then we're going to make sure that the needs of every brother and sister in this family are met, even if it requires extreme measures to do so. This is not a first century teaching. The church throughout history has seen the need to be united both in purpose and in possessions. Listen to the second century patristic father, Tertullian, describe his church family. He says, We call each other brothers, one in mind and soul. We do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us but our wives. That's biblical. They shared everything except their spouses. Why'd they do that? They were family. I mean, they were family. They understood that. They saw the love there. My beloved, this is not, this is not Marxist, communist, socialistic theory. This is not 
democratic socialism, which is oxymoronic, by the way. Can't have those two terms coincide. Those are top-down, government-enforced redistribution of income. This isn't even charity. We talk about benevolence in the church. This is not even benevolence. You know what this is? This is a family living as a family, saying, I got a brother or sister in need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them out. Why? Because that's my brother or sister. That's what families do. That's what healthy families do. I, I'm one of four boys. My brothers are old like me. If any one of them called me at any time and said, I have a particular need, instantaneously it would be met. And I have no doubt if I called them, the exact same thing would happen. Why? They're my brothers. I mean, that's just simple, right? How much more so in the body of Christ? I mean, I'm bound to them biologically through my parents. How much more so those bound by the blood of Jesus? Blood-bought brothers and sisters in the family of God. I would say more so. In fact, I would say that if one of my brothers came to me in need and you came to me in need and I only had $100, it would go to you first because you are my spiritual family. You are my spiritual family. This costly sharing of our time and our resources truly does reflect the degree to which we really love each other, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's when it costs, it's when it hurts. Because we all know that money is far more than a, a medium of exchange. We know that money and how we spend it reflects our hearts. It reflects what we're passionate about. And it certainly will reflect the degree to which we truly love each other in the body of Christ. John said this in 1 John three seventeen. Listen, he said, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. Listen to what he asks. He says, how does God's love abide in him? The answer is it cannot. It cannot. If God's love abides in you and your brother or sister in Christ is in need, you'll meet that need. You'll do everything you can to meet that need. It means that, my beloved, if we're a family, then we will have all things in common. We will share lives. We'll be intimate even our possessions. Okay, so we've seen one, the devotion in God's family. Number two, the supernatural unity in God's family. Can I show you one more before I close? I got one more. This new family's worship. Oh, how they worship God. My goodness. Look at verse 46. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Again, more food, more tabling, more eating. So glorious. I don't even really like food that much. But I love the intimacy that comes from a meal. Dr. Luke reveals two locations of worship. Did you notice that? In the temple and in their homes. In the temple courts and in their homes. So, well, why would they... If they're not engaging in the old covenant sacrificial system, why are they still gathering in the temple? We know they're praying in the temple because up until the destruction of the temple, and probably actually much earlier, prior to 70 AD, they realized it was still a place of worship. It was still a house of worship. But it was also, you need to know this, it was also a very strategic place for the proclamation of the gospel. The temple grounds comprised about 35 acres where people could gather. By the thousands they could gather. Not only could they gather there, but it was the primary place for devout Jews to gather. And of course, it was the devout Jews that were to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ first. 
So the, the early church met in the temple not only because it was still a place of worship, but it was a place of evangelism. They would go and they would pray and they would proclaim the gospel, and day by day people were being saved. But Luke also tells us that in addition to their temple gatherings, look at the latter part of verse 46 again, they broke bread in their homes and received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were, they were meeting in the homes. Now, at that time, even a large home, 50 people would have been about max in a, in a large, wealthy home. The average home then in the Eastern Mediterranean culture was 10 to 15. And you say, that's, the, that's almost the exact right size for a small group. It is. Small groups, community groups. In other words, we see this great parallel of the first century worship and our worship today. They gathered in the temple and they gathered in their homes. We would want to do the same if we're going to try to parallel this. Both proved effective means. They gathered like this, they gathered in the public, and they gathered in their homes. It was effective then, and, and for churches that have been sensitive to this, it's been effective for 2,000 years. Small groups, by the way. Community groups are not a new contemporary Western church invention, unless you think that Pentecost is a contemporary invention. Temple and homes. Look at verse 40, latter part of verse 47. Praising God. They were worshiping in the temple in the homes. They were praising God. They were also having favor with all the people. Now that is a fascinating thought. Their worship of God in public and private brought the favor of the people. Their worship of God brought the favor of the people. I don't imagine, my beloved, if you invited your coworkers and your neighbors here, they'd come in and say, you've got to come see how I worship God. You've got to come see how I sing to God. I don't know that they would, you would necessarily find favor in that. And yet God's doing a mighty work here through how they were worshiping him. You see, in the temple, they were proclaiming Christ, and they were singing to Christ, and they were praying to Christ, and people saw that, and they were drawn in. They were drawn in in this authentic, of course, we know it to be real, worship of the living God, seeing not only God rightly worshiped, but seeing the love that was taking place in that family. And then they would in, they'd go to the temple, no, no doubt, and they would invite people to say, come back to my house. Come back to my house and, and eat with me and pray with me, and I'll open up the scriptures and we'll, we'll study together and we'll learn about Christ together. And they did. Many did. And they were drawn in through the homes. My beloved, listen, the, the New Testament church understood that they were to be an evangelistic church. They weren't supposed to just gather and, and savor the beauty of God's new family. They were supposed to savor this beauty and go out and have people brought in. Not Listen, I'm not advocating a seeker-sensitive church model. Seeker-sensitive is you change the way you worship to make people feel comfortable to get them in. That was not this. This, though, would be a lost-sensitive model. Always wanting to worship the one true living God in spirit and in truth, according to the word, in front of other people. Lost sensitive. I like that. Where we want to be out in the public square for people to see us worshiping God together. And by all means, bring them here that they can see too. The true worship of the living God. Look at the result. In the latter part of verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Day by day, as they continue to worship in the temple courts in their homes, another 5,000 as we get to Acts chapter 4. Two important notes. This is God's doing. You cannot fabricate salvation. 
You cannot create an environment, make it nice and emotional, and get people to be saved. God must, by His Holy Spirit, make someone who is dead alive. He must, by His Spirit, cause someone to repent of their sins, put their faith in Christ to save them, and be saved. God does that work. And, and this is really important, He does it through the church. He does it through His family. God doesn't go and save people independent of the church. He puts the church on display. You see, He knows that if we are truly living and loving one another as He's created and and called us to live and love, that we're going to be an attraction to the world, that we will be that Matthew 5 light that's on the hill that people will see and be drawn to. He knows that a new family devoted, truly devoted to God's Word and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer will cause people who are our enemies to want to be friends and those who are strangers to want to be brothers and sisters. God's desire is the exact same for Cambrian Park Baptist Church. Again, the church in Jerusalem was not an historical anomaly. He wants us to be a supernatural family of God. He wants us to be the same. So wonderfully distinct that when those in Cambrian Park and those at your workplace and your neighbors see you and see the way you live and then see how you love those in the church, they're, they're going to want to know more. And it is not unlike God to use those opportunities to add them to his family. In fact, that's the primary means he's been doing it now for centuries. So this is not the attractional model. Bring in lots of lights and lots of smoke Do lots of theater here. Park a Harley Davidson right there and raffle it at the end of the service. This is not that. This is an attractional model based upon the love of a family. This is an attractional model that is biblically mandated and works. A family so in love with Christ and so in love with one another that the world sees it and wants sin. It's a family where sins are committed. This is not a perfect family. We're still sinners saved by grace. But it's a family where sins are committed and forgiveness is quickly sought and quickly given. Why? Because we've been forgiven by Christ. It is a family, I do believe, that is in hot pursuit of holiness, where where prayer is natural, where intimacy is expected, where God's word just rolls off our tongues because we're so saturated by it. He added to their numbers then, and I believe that a church that is faithful in the power of the Holy Spirit, out of their love for Christ to live like this, he'll add two today. He added also because they were faithful in their worship of him. Public square, in their homes, they were faithfully worshiping God as missionaries. Remember, they took very seriously Jesus' call for them to be witnesses. So they were witnesses. They said, we want to be witnesses everywhere we are. We want to be witnesses when we gather here. We want to be witnesses in our neighborhood. It was pleasing to God to grow his family by bringing sons and daughters to a healthy family. And now that makes sense, right? I mean, we we understand that just as Adam and Eve were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, every single Christian is called to the same. Not just your biological family, but As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be fruitful and multiply by having Christians added to the family here. God God loves the thought of his family growing. God wants a bigger family. And that means, my beloved, when we go out to the farmer's market on Saturday, I think 
they met 26 people this, last, this past Saturday. It's incredible. And we go out to Planned Parenthood and, and we testify to the gospel of Christ and we cry out for moms not to murder their babies. When we go to the parks and we talk to people at the parks, when you say to your neighbor, hey, you know, I, I know I haven't spent much time with you, but I'd like to get to know you better. Let, come on over to my house on Friday night and I'll throw some burgers on the barbecue. Um, all those things, my beloved, are the means by which God uses to add to his family. And he wants to add to his family. He wants his church to grow because the more saints that worship Christ, the more glory Christ receives. That's what we want to. Why wouldn't God do the same today? Why, why wouldn't he add to this church or any church that was serious about worshiping him? I mean, our, our secular adoption agencies go to extreme measures to place children in their homes. I, I believe that God is, is concerned about where his children end up. And I believe that a, a church that's healthy, that's truly pursuing and loving Christ, will be a place that God wants to bring his children to. It, it's the testimony we want as a church. One author said it like this. He, she, she said, how we live together as the family of God is the most persuasive sermon we will ever get to preach. Amen to that. How we live together as the family of God is the most persuasive sermon we will ever get to preach. The best sermon you've ever heard throughout church history does not compare to a church living as a family testifying to the power of Jesus Christ. It does not. It does not. And that's nothing against the great, great preachers throughout the centuries. The way of life that Dr. Luke is talking about in Acts chapter 2 is so contrary to the radical individualism and self-exaltation of our culture. It's just almost the opposite. That way of life by the culture, it's been tried and it ends always in disappointment, loneliness, and death. Not this new family. This new family that Christ is creating, it offers hope to all people. Hope that you can, through repentance and faith, be forgiven by Jesus. That you can be saved from the sins that you've committed against a thrice holy God. Hope that in that forgiveness you will not only be brought into the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that God says, I'm going to give you the greatest gift in the world. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to dwell in you now and forever. And then in that spirit, enjoy sweet communion with God and the ability to overcome your sins. Yes, even the sin of radical individualism, even the sin of total personal autonomy, the power of the Spirit can quench today and make you part of this family. It's the hope of being made a son or a daughter of God the Father and a brother or sister of Jesus Christ. The hope of experiencing the love in God's true family. Now... And for all eternity. You know, that's the good news. If you are part of the family of God, you're not going anywhere. We're all going to end up in the same place together. Might as well get along now, right? The gospel offers hope to a culture that does not know the love of family. Doesn't know it. It offers hope. When we, love, when we live in a countercultural, gospel-saturated way, the world can see God's love, they can hear God's message, and they can be added to the family too. I don't know about you, I love big family dinners. 
And we had a chance uh, two Thanksgivings ago to have every member of my family sit around my parents' table. And the table was long, long. And I thought, my goodness, what a blessing. What a blessing. How incredible it must be for God. How pleasing it must be to his heart when he sees his table growing and growing with those who have been saved in Christ. What a blessing. My beloved, I, I want to give you an exhortation right now as a family that you would ask yourselves how we, not you, but how we can be more devoted to the means of grace that will cultivate a family here. How can we be more serious about God's word, not just hearing like now, but doing what we just talked about? How can we truly enjoy the intimacy and fellowship of a brother or sister here in this church? How can we spend more time breaking bread together? One way is to stay and eat after the service. How can we spend more time praying together? All the things that we know are pleasing to God and all the things that we know God will be pleased to add to our numbers as a result of. How can we do that? How can you participate in that? We want to be faithful in these means of grace because first and foremost, it pleases God and brings him glory. But I also want to be faithful. I want our church to be faithful because I do believe that God still can do a mighty work here in this very dark place, that Cambrian Park is not utterly lost, that there are many souls right around this church this very morning, maybe still in bed, that a year from now we can add to this family if we get to know them and share the gospel and pray that God would save them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be part of this great family-making endeavor. We are so thankful that you took sinners like us and brought us into a family that we do not deserve. We are so thankful, Father, that for these many years here, there has been a family, a light stand since 1952 that you've sustained this family. Sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, but this family remains. Lord, I, I ask that you would grow it. Oh my goodness, Father, overwhelm us by adding to this church. Not Christian going from church to church, but unsaved being made alive and coming into the family of God. All of us know so many who do not know your son. Lord, cause us to pray for them because we know the Spirit must do a work. Open our mouths that we might proclaim to them that the Spirit might do his work. Father, we're asking for Nothing less than what you expect. <laughs> Nothing less than what is normal for a spirit-filled church living as the family of God. I pray, Lord, that we would see the work you did in Acts 2 and desire to live the same. For the blessing of this church, for our community, and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.